Imagine, if you will, this accident scene. The man is standing there saying, there's nothing wrong with me. But the paramedic said, but sir, you've been involved in a terrible car accident. You're bleeding and you've got some very deep bruises. There might be some internal damage. But the man says, no, there's nothing wrong with me. Well, at least have a doctor check it out. No, there's nothing wrong with me. Well, we've got an ambulance right here. They could check it out. No, there's absolutely nothing wrong with me. And finally, the man just walks away. His wife picks him up, drives him home, and there he dies from internal bleeding. There's nothing wrong with me. You know, that can be a particularly dangerous thing to say. Spiritually, it is perhaps the worst thing a person could possibly say. For a person to stand before God and say, there's nothing wrong with me that's incompatible with Christianity and unacceptable to God. I want you to think for a moment, what is the opposite of there's nothing wrong with me? Well, the opposite of that would be there's everything wrong with me. And according to the Bible, a Christian is what, someone who can stand before God and say, there's everything wrong with me. A Christian who is also someone who can say, but even though everything's wrong with me, my Jesus has overcome my sin. He has taken away all the things that are wrong with me. Now, today is Ash Wednesday. It is the first day of Lent. The question is, what is Lent? What's it all about? Well, we find the answer, I think, in this little story that Jesus tells about two very different people that Jimmy just read to us about. One who says, there's nothing wrong with me. And the other one who said, there's everything wrong with me. One of them represents what Lent is, and the other one represents what Lent is not. And tonight we want to focus on these two people as we seek to better understand what Lent really is and what it can mean for us this year, today, our whole life, in fact. Now, in another version of the Scriptures, it says that Jesus told this story to people who were confident in their own self-righteousness. Now, I've challenged people for years to come up with a word that begins with self that is a good word. I'm not sure that any word that begins with self really is a good word. Self-confident, self-righteous, self-motivated. That's really putting the accent on who? It's putting the accent on you and not on God. It said these were people who loved their own self-righteousness and who looked down on everybody else. These are the people who attend church that would drown in a rainstorm. They got their nose so high in the air. It said two men went up to the temple. They went to church, and they went for the same reason. They went to pray. One was a Pharisee. One was a tax collector. I hope you remember that Pharisees were really pretty decent people. These would be the people that you wouldn't mind living next door to. I mean, today's culture, these would be people who keep their yards neat and clean. You know, they'd have their flowers all beautiful, decorated. You know, they, they would trim their hedges, their, you know, their kids would play nice. The swing sets were really lovely. I mean, they washed their cars on Sunday afternoon, just wonderful people. They lived good, clean lives. 
The tax collectors, on the other hand, are those people you wouldn't want to live by. I mean, these are people that nobody liked because they swindled and intimidated everybody. They cheated everybody out of money. But it says that both of these people came to church, and they both came for the same reason. They came to pray. Now, in the NIV, it says, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. You catch that? He prayed about himself. He didn't pray to Jesus. He began to talk about himself in his prayers. And he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people who've shown up at church tonight. And then he proceeds to list them. Those robbers. We know who they are. Those evildoers, those adulterers. And you can almost imagine him standing in the front of the church, turning around and saying, and I'm a whole lot better than that guy in the back row, that tax collector. Then he goes on and, and tells us why he's such a good guy. He says, I fast twice a week. That's twice as often as he had to do it. He said, I give a tenth of all that I get, not just of his money, but if they went out and they actually bought dill seed in the market, they would count those dill seeds, and then they would tie the tenth of that too. They, they tied the tenth of absolutely everything. Now, you can sum up this guy's prayer very simply this way. I thank you, God, that there's nothing wrong with me. And you know, on one level, he was probably right. He was a good citizen. He obeyed the law. He lived a moral and upright life. He did the religious things that he was supposed to do. He showed up at church regularly. He gave a tithe of his, of his income to church. He fasted a couple of times during the week. So really, there was not much wrong with this guy, at least outwardly. He'd be the kind of guy you'd like to welcome into your church. But then Jesus turns and he looks at this back row backslider, this tax collector, the opposite of the Pharisee. This is a guy who worked for the hated Romans. Here was a guy who was robbing and stealing from people, his fellow Jews, his entire life. He ruined the lives of other people so that he himself could live life to its fullest. And he knew that his life had been an absolute disaster, and he knew without a doubt that he deserved to go to hell when he died. Now, Jesus in the story says the tax collector stood at a distance. I mean, he stayed way in the back. He might have stood in the doorway or stood out in the hallway of this church. He didn't dare even come forward. He said he... He hung his head. He would not even look up to heaven. He was so ashamed of his sin. But then he did something that you don't find us doing anymore today. In the King James, it said he stood and he would beat his breast. Maybe you've seen pictures of people today at the Wailing Wall as they, they're bowing and bending forward you know, in Jerusalem and they're pounding their chest. Sometimes they would even rip their clothes just to show it what anguish they had. And he prayed this very simple prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, his prayer was the exact opposite of the Pharisees. And you can sum up his prayer this way. God, there's everything wrong with me. Help me. Now, the interesting thing, in fact, it's the interesting thing about most of Jesus' parables, is the kind of little twist he gives at the end. Because Jesus goes on to say that it's the sinful tax collector was the one that was forgiven by God. And we're kind of left to ask, why is this? 
But Jesus, as always, gives us the answer. He says, because everybody who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But we need to ask this question. What is Jesus actually saying here? Is Jesus saying that you earn forgiveness by being humble? Oh, look how how humble that tax collector is, says God. That tax collector deserves to be forgiven because he's so humble. Is that how it works? You know, that's the way a lot of people in church think it works. But that's not how it works in God's system. See, if that's why God forgives you, then your salvation would be completely dependent on you and your level of humility then you could never be sure if you've been forgiven because you would never be sure whether you were humble enough for God to forgive you. See, the truth of the matter is, friends, neither one of these guys, the Pharisee or the tax collector, neither one of them deserved to be forgiven. The Pharisee didn't because he was conceited and because he was self-righteous. The tax collector certainly didn't deserve God's forgiveness because of the terrible life he'd led. Neither one of them. And guess what? None of you or me deserve to be forgiven by God. Amen. That'd be a horrible sermon, wouldn't it? If I ended there. That none of us deserve to be forgiven by God. But, and there's always a but, the good news, the good news is this, that God forgives people purely out of his mercy. And as a result of this undeserved love, God forgives people. And God forgives because Jesus Christ has taken away all the sins of the world. And because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross some 2,000 years ago, he cleansed the entire world of its sin. And as a result, he is capable of offering forgiveness to everyone. Now, in this story again, forgiveness was offered to both of these guys, to both the tax collector and the Pharisee, but only the tax collector received God's forgiveness. It's because in his mercy, God chooses to forgive only those people who do what? Who humble themselves before him and who can stand honestly before God and say, there's everything wrong with me. Lord, have mercy. I am a sinner. See, humble people are those who recognize that they do sin, that they have sin in their life, and that they need God's help. These are the people who receive forgiveness, not because they grovel on the ground, but because God decides to show his undeserved love to everyone who is humble and sorry for their sins. (coughs) When I looked at this story, I thought to myself how the humble tax collector is really a picture of Lent. The proud Pharisee is actually the kind of anti-Lent figure. The question is, which one will you be this season? I mean, do you plan to act a little extra religious this Lenten season? You know, a lot of people observe Lent that way. I got an email from somebody yesterday who said, well, farewell to meat, farewell to drink, farewell to Facebook. See you in 40 days. Now, that person was saying, it's the season of Lent. I'm not going to eat meat. I'm not going to drink. And I'm not going to be on Facebook. You know, there are a lot of people who think that's what Lent's all about. You know, maybe if I'll give up something for Lent, 
I mean, I'll no longer watch my favorite TV shows. What they really do is they TiVo everything and watch it when Lent is over. Or I'll give up chocolate, or I'll give up pizza, at least until Easter Sunday when you gorge yourself again. And then people will see how really religious I can be. I mean, God would be really happy with me if I would refrain from eating chocolate and eating pizza or watching television. But the question is, friends, is Lent a time of self-denial? Now, Jesus speaks to us through his word, and he tells us that Lent is a time to give up something. But Jesus is not interested in Facebook. He's not interested in chocolate. He's not interested in pizza. He's not interested in television. What Jesus is interested in is what's going on in here, in your heart. See, Lent is a time to give up those sins that linger and lurk in our lives. Let me give you a few examples. It's time maybe to give up the sin of hypocrisy, acting like a Christian on the outside and being very proud and self-centered on the inside. Lent is a time to give up the sin of duplicity, being a Christian on Sunday morning, but acting like a heathen on Friday night. It's time to give up the sin of lethargy, you know, that someday I'm going to get my act together spiritually. You know, right now I'm too busy focusing on this or that. I don't know what sin it is that you ought to give up this Lent. Well, Lent is the man who stood in the back of the church looked down at the ground and said very simply, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I think Lent is a time for us to be like that man, to give up our sinful habits, and friends, we all got them, and to be able to stand before God and admit it, and then to ask him to forgive us, to wash our sins away and to empower us to turn away from our sinful past and to live new lives that are solely and totally dedicated to him. And after we lay our sins on him, Lent is also a time to give up all of those guilty feelings. You know, just like that tax collector walked home justified before God, so we too can walk away knowing that we have been forgiven. We can say, I no longer feel guilty about my sins. I no longer have to beat myself up over the way I've been living. I've been forgiven. My sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. I can start over. I can work hard to be someone who obeys God and who worships God every day of his life with his whole life. You know, Lent really is a time of attitude adjustment. It's an attitude of honesty. It's an attitude of humility as we confess our sins to God. But Lent also ought to have an attitude of, of uh, relief and joy knowing that our sins have been forgiven, that our slate has been wiped clean as we seek to serve God with our lives. These next seven weeks, friends, 40 days, are a time for you to look deep into your own heart, to think about your own life and how you've been living it. I mean, what sin will God draw to your attention that you should give up for Lent, and not just for Lent, but for the rest of your life. You know, when you identify that sin and you say, Lord, I am a sinner, forgive me, he will forgive that sin and he will wash away that sin 
at the cross. And Jesus promises then to give you power to live a new life that glorifies him. Now, if some of you want to give up some things temporarily for Lent as a sign of your love for the Savior, go for it. won't bother me. <clears throat> People have already asked me, Pastor, what are you giving up for Lent? And I said, I'm giving up, giving up stuff for Lent. Because I know ultimately that Jesus is really concerned about what goes on in this man's heart, even as he cares about what goes on in your heart. So this evening, I just pray that we begin, as we begin that long walk to the cross, we see just how terrible our sins really are. But to also, when we get there, to see how wonderful our Savior really is. And see, the road doesn't really end at the cross. The road ends at the open tomb where Jesus rises from the dead to prove that all of your sins really have been forgiven. And may God bless you as you begin this Lenten journey. In Jesus' name, amen.